And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men in, of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you show kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And, Saul, and Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to you, the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted to the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, 
he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. The word obedience has fallen on hard times. We don't like to use it very much. We may send our dogs to obedience school. Uh, We did in our case and it didn't work. Uh, We might talk to a young child about being obedient when crossing the street, but by and large, this is not something we like to talk about. No CEO would start his first day on the job with a speech where he begins, I am your boss, obey me. Uh, That would not be what would happen. Friends don't ask friends to obey. Teachers typically don't ask students to obey. All of this language sounds rather medieval. The only place where we're comfortable with the language of obedience is uh, perhaps in the military, perhaps, but, but, but particularly in police activity. That somehow seems appropriate language for criminals. Uh, we, the fellows program is taking a little course on seeking the peace of the city, and this past week we listened to a lecture by uh, Williams, is that it, the new Jim Crow and about the incarceration and the problem of justice in, in, in American prisons. And then we went over to the Knox County Jail, and we took a tour there, and we went back into the pods where uh, a number of the, uh, the, it's all men out there, were there. And uh, the, the thing that kind of set us all aback was as soon as we walked into the pod, uh, Colonel Pemberton stepped out and looked around to all the men who were peering out and said, go back, go back, go back, go back. And we asked him why, and he explained that these guys don't see young women and uh, that they would say inappropriate things. 
And so he wanted them to, uh, to sit down. And I think we were all struck by this command and control structure where one person would tell another to, to obey and they would do it. Prisoners, dogs, and little children, they have to obey. Uh, but we are free. We can do what we want. But when we enter the strange world of the Bible, we find a very different view of obedience. Uh, God is our king. We are his subjects. He is loving and just. He's our father. But he's also to be obeyed. And what we find is that we are free only to the extent that we are obedient. And in that truth, that reality is hard for us to grasp. That's not something we're comfortable with. But Jesus, after all, invites the disciples to follow him, which is an invitation to obedience. Uh, Mark 1.17, Jesus said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they followed him. The disciples obeyed the command. Later, Mark says to a crowd of would-be disciples, he says, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. So, If you want to be a follower of Christ, it's, it's all about obedience. It's all about turning away from your own autonomy, turning towards him, following him. Jesus will define a disciple like this. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, You know a disciple by their obedience, by their conforming their lives to the pattern of Christ, to the commands of Christ, to the will of Christ, to the word of Christ. And of course, when our Lord sends the disciples out to launch the gospel movement, He says, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So in this strange new world of the Bible, we are all subjects of a loving but just king, and obedience is the the, the essence of what it means to follow. A loving obedience, yes, an intimate, familial obedience, yes, an obedience in a loving father, but still obedience. Well, our story that we just heard read so, so powerfully, begins with a word from the Lord. Samuel says, listen to the word of the Lord. And the Hebrew word there is dabar. It's used, or the root of it is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is always speaking in the Bible. He is always speaking. He's always calling and inviting us to some kind of an adventure or a journey or correcting us or warning us or encouraging us or comforting us. He's always speaking. Do you believe God speaks? If we follow John Lennon's invitation and imagine there's no Heaven, we, we enter a worldview, a secular worldview that's very common today, one in which there's no place for God speaking. And most Christians, most of us would say, oh, no, no, I believe God speaks in some kind of theoretical uh, way. But do you believe he speaks to you? 
Do you know what he's saying to you tonight? Do you know the word of the Lord for your life this evening? The word to Saul is a grim one. The prophet tells him to destroy uh, the Amalekites totally, entirely, including the king and the livestock and even the children. And we, we looked at that very difficult command last week. It's called holy, wear, holy War. And we talked about how to reconcile that with the New Testament command to love our enemies and preach the gospel to them. And if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to, to go listen to it online because it's an important question for those of us that love and trust Scripture. For tonight, I don't want you to think about uh, the ethical issues of holy war as much as just the fact that God speaks to Saul and is very clear he wants, he wants him to follow through totally in this war. Now, in the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets, but in, in this side of Pentecost, God's prophetic spirit lives inside of each of you. That's one of the great benefits of being in the New Covenant. You don't have to wait for a prophet to come. The Spirit of the living God lives in you. He speaks through. He speaks through the Word of God. He speaks to you through prayer. He speaks to you in worship. He speaks to you through conversation. He speaks to you through general revelation. He, but He's speaking. He's always speaking. It's the heart of the whole Christian relationship. It's the essence of a father-son, father-daughter relationship. Is Debar. God is speaking. He has a word for your life. Do you know what it is? Hearing God's word and obeying it is how we come to know God, and that's the purpose for which we're made. There's a wonderful book out by a best-selling writer and Jesuit priest called The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, A Spirituality for Real Life. And he has a section called Listen Carefully. Just read a few sentences. He says, Emotions are a key way that God speaks in prayer. You might be praying about a favorite Bible passage and suddenly you feel happiness over being closer to God or sorrow over the plight of the poor. Insights are another way that God speaks in prayer. You may see a novel way of approaching an old problem. Memories can float to the surface during prayer. Here God may invite you to remember something that consoles or delights you. Feelings are important. Besides recognizable emotions like joy and sorrow, more indistinct feelings like a sense of peace or communion with God can be signs of God's voice. Finally comes desire. They arrive in prayer frequently. There's the desire for God, the desire for holiness, the desire for change and growth in life. Those are all ways that the word of the Lord comes to us. Then he ends with a quote, if we could put that up on the screen, that I thought was helpful. He said, the fundamental attitude of the believer is of one who listens. It is to the Lord's utterances that he gives ear. In as many different ways and on as many varied levels as the listener can discern the word or will of the Lord manifested to him, he must respond. Take some time this week, pull out your journal or your iPad or your phone or whatever it is, and and sketch out the handful of things that the Lord is talking to you about at this point in your life. 
uh, it probably won't be real exciting. Very few times in our life do we have those big words that call for dramatic change. They come. Sometimes they come. They come more often when you're young than when you're old. They do come. But more often than not, it's it's slight midterm corrections, slight course corrections. But he's always speaking. Take out a pencil and paper and write down three, four, five words that he's talking to you about right now. And again, they're not going to come as clearly as they come through Saul. They're going to be impressions or burdens or senses or drawings or or a sense of warning or caution, uh, an interior movement of your soul, something that keeps coming to you again and again in conversations and in the things you're reading and, and in worship services. That's how he's speaking. Pay attention to that. I did that exercise this week, and, and I'm, always, uh, I'm always struck by just how boring my spiritual life is. It's never anything exciting. It's things like, uh, don't make exercise an idol. It's things like, turn your chair quickly. It's things like, practice Sabbath. It's things like, Explore Ignatian spirituality during Lent. Those are some of the things that are on my list. Well, Saul goes on a mission against this people. and They happen to be a a Bedouin tribe, a nomadic tribe that we read in Exodus hindered Israel from moving to the Promised Land. And he defeats them in battle, but he doesn't fully complete the mission and We read that Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fattened calves and lambs, all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless worthless they devoted to destruction. And again, please, I spent all last week doing the best I could to try to help us understand holy war. Don't get sidetracked or you'll lose the whole point of this sermon tonight. The point tonight is there was a command. It looked to, to the, bystander, the bystander that he'd done it. But in his heart, before God, he knew he'd only partially obeyed. He had not completed what God had asked him to do. I want you to think about two things tonight as a result of this sermon. The first is we already went over. What is the word of the Lord for you tonight? What are the three or four or five things that the Lord is saying to you tonight? And the second question I want you to wrestle with this week is, where are you only partially obeying? Where in your life are you not finishing what God told you to start? Where in your life are you half-heartedly going about what he asks you to do. You know, it's, it's easy to start things. It's very hard to finish them. And we love that new word, that fresh thing. We love to just start. We have a hard time finishing
Where in your life are you having a hard time finishing? Following through. Eugene Peterson talked about a long obedience in the same direction. Where are you in the middle of a long obedience and you've grown tired or maybe bored or frustrated or discouraged and you just, you've just kind of walked away from it? You've walked away from that relationship. You've walked away from that calling. You've walked away from that dream. You've walked away from that group of people. You've walked away from that training you were supposed to pursue. Where in your life have you only partially obeyed the Lord? Jesus says in John 15, If you keep keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you that your joy may be full. Joy comes from total obedience, utter obedience, whole obedience, full obedience, complete obedience. When we pull it, when we bail out, when we get bored and turn away, when we go after the next new thing, we miss the joy of the Lord. We miss the fullness of what He has for us. Well, Saul's about to discover the consequences of partial obedience. And part of it, perhaps, is maybe he didn't understand what the Lord was asking him to do. Maybe it didn't make sense to him to kill everything. After all, he had all these troops and he had to feed them. Maybe that's why he didn't slaughter everything and destroy it, but instead sacrifice it. Then he could eat it. Maybe the Lord's command didn't make sense to him. You ever been there? Maybe you're at a place tonight where the Lord is, is, is moving on your heart to do something and it makes no sense. Matter of fact, you know a better way. Understanding is not a requirement for obedience for the Christian. <laughs> Understanding is not a prerequisite, easy for me to say, not a prerequisite for obedience. You don't have to understand. If you know that's what the Lord has asked you to do, you do it whether you understand or not. Now, I, I know that doubt is an important part of faith and at all souls we try to create an atmosphere where you can ask hard questions and, and that's why I gave a whole sermon last week to a hard question and, and we talk about not needing to have answers to questions and all of that and I pray we stay in a, in a culture that, where it's okay to doubt and question. But here's, here's what, I, what I observe, is that maybe 75% of time, the hard question is an excuse to avoid obedience. It's not that you're really hung up on this intellectual problem. It's that you're having a hard time obeying. And so you ask, and hide behind the hard question. Well, Saul is about to discover the consequences of partial obedience. Uh, Saul regret, or God regrets making him king. And Saul is still oblivious. We read, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. 
So we're beginning to understand what's going on here. Saul is not really a man after God's own heart. He's not really trying to obey the Lord. He's sort of using this religion thing for his own power, his own glory. Samuel catches up with Saul, greets him triumphantly. Samuel replies sarcastically. And then Saul starts to explain himself. First he says, well, the people wanted to offer a sacrifice and Samuel won't buy it. And then he uses the same excuse again and puts a little more blame on the people. And Samuel's had enough. He quotes scripture. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And then come the consequences. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then Saul offers kind of a half-hearted, superficial confession. He's even, now's the first time in the whole story he's beginning to acknowledge that he might have done something wrong. And it's still kind of halfway. He says, I've sinned because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It's not a great confession. It's sort of a talk show confession. I guess it's a start, but it doesn't get much better. But I think there's something to learn in that is one of the reasons we don't obey fully, one of the reasons we obey with a half heart, one of the reasons we don't finish what God tells us to start, one of the reasons we leave things undone is fear. Terror. Anxiety. Fear of failure, fear of success, fear of what other people might think, fear of the strange ways of God. Fear is what keeps you and I from obeying the Lord. Samuel turns to leave. Saul grabs his cloak, tears it. And then Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. These Old Testament stories have rough edges. That's not how you fire somebody today, but that's how he did it then. The stage is set for the coming of a new king. Samuel goes, kills the king himself. And then the story ends with these sad, sad words. And Samuel didn't see Saul again until the day of his death. Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Saul forfeits his vocation. He, he, he loses his role in the plan of God. He, 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 uh, he, he loses the opportunity to serve God in the way that God called him to. And this is the risk of partial obedience. This is the risk, even in the New Covenant, for not following through on what God asks you to do, for not knowing the will of God and obeying it, for, for, for copping out, for pulling it short, for punting, is you may forfeit your calling. You may never do what God called you to do. The text doesn't say that Saul is hated by God now. We get the impression that at any moment he could turn back to God. David certainly models that. Saul particularly doesn't. But the point of the story is, is, is that there is freedom in how we follow God and we have the choice to either not listen 
or listen and then not obey. And if you say no to the small, silly little things that he's speaking to you about tonight, and you say no again and again and again and again, there is a risk to that. And the risk is that your role in the kingdom will be taken away. I mean, you lose your salvation and all of that. I don't, I don't believe that for, for a minute. Does that mean you don't have an opportunity to turn back, to repent? Of course you do. But this is a real risk. This is why the story ends. And God regretted making Saul king. One of the, the ways to read that one translation has, and God grieved making Saul king. What does he mean? It, 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 it means... God was saddened by Saul's failure to turn towards him and obey him. Oh, that's such an Old Testament story. So glad we're in the New Covenant. Oh, don't don't go there with it. (laughs) Jesus stands over Jerusalem and weeps, grieves over their refusal to turn towards him. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Beloved, you can grieve the Father. Oh, but I thought he was a loving father. If you don't put those two together, you don't have children. (laughs) A father can love a child, a mother can love a child and be grieved by the child. doesn't mean you stop loving them, but it means that you're grieved. And so one of the things that that I'd ask you to think about as we draw near a close tonight is... As the Father thinks about your life, as the Father thinks about the way you've positioned your heart, the bent of your life, the direction of your life, is He grieved? Is the Father sad by the way you lived last week? You know, there's even a parable in the New Testament where the parable of the talents, where there's different levels of talents given, and one person is unfaithful and doesn't invest their talent. They're not a good steward of it. And what happens at the end of the parable? Their, their, their talent is taken away. That's a new covenant teaching. I assume you're still a child of God, and I always assume you can turn back through Christ. Of course you can, but the risk is real. Now, the, the, the last part of this that I think is the most troubling possibility. The first part is, is that you know what you're supposed to do, and, and, and you're, you're realizing tonight that you're just partially obedient. That's serious stuff. It got Saul into deep trouble, but, but you know what to do about it. What's even scarier is that your spiritual ears are so full of wax that you have no idea what God is saying to you. Not even a general sense. And again, I'm not saying, hey, the normal Christian life is that you've got this detailed action plan with bullet points and turn right here and this parking place. I'm not saying that's normal. 
But I am saying, if, if you are walking with God in any sense, you'll be led by the Spirit, and you will have a broad sense of living in conformity to the will of God, and a general sense of that way and not that. And if there's none of that in your life, either it's a rare season called a dark night of the soul, with which you need to talk to a wise spiritual friend and walk through it, because that can happen. That can happen. Or... You've not created room in your life to listen to God. There's no space in your life to hear from Him. And our culture is so noisy, it's very hard to do that. So the even more frightening or sobering problem tonight is not partial obedience to the word that you've heard, but not hearing. Now Lent is upon us. It's late this year. It begins in a couple of weeks. Lent is a great time to clean out your spiritual ears. And if you're in a place where you just have no idea, if, if, if your life right now is like that lady in the movie Gravity, and you're in a little bubble just going off into the cosmos, cut off from Houston, Lent's the time to reconnect. Find a couple of your people. Be honest. Tell them that you haven't heard a word from the Lord in 10 years and you want to talk about it together during Lent and pray about it and, and ask God to open your ears. And again, I want to say this. You may find during Lent, as you ask that question, that you are in a dark night of the soul and that nothing is wrong with your ears. But for some reason, God is being silent. Sometimes He does that. I get that. I understand that. But we are too quick to just attribute the lack of a word to God's dark night. And I think that's a lot rarer than we let on. Let's pray.